This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Jen Billick about creating and running her company, Knock Knock, which designs, manufactures, sells, and distributes gift products and books. I'm far from the best designer there will ever be. I'm not the best writer that will ever be, and I'm not the best business person, but I think one of the things that is special about me is my ability to combine them. Here's Debbie Millman. Think about the last time you went to the office supply store. Maybe you chuckled at a checklist titled, Why You Really, Really Deserve Candy. Or maybe you were tempted by the stamp that says, WTF. That's the work of Jen Billick, the founder and CEO of Knock Knock. Jen has been designing and selling cheeky, wordy, and slightly nerdy products for nearly a decade. She started small in 2002, and these days, her unorthodox operation is a multi-million dollar business that employs nearly three dozen people. More on that in a bit. But for now... Knock, knock. Who's there? It's Jen Billick. Jen, welcome to Design Matters. <laughs> what a, what an intro. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't resist. <laughs> so, Jen, you were recently described on a popular tech site as a certified entrepreneurial badass. <laughs> I was very that uh, I would not describe myself that way, but I was very pleased to see that someone else had. So so you believe that that's accurate then? <laughs> um, badass, I don't know. Somebody who has um, gone through the paces and earned a sort of a scrappy MBA despite herself, yes. So what is a certified entrepreneurial badass? I think it's someone who's actually persevered and learned and grown and stayed alive through this process that I had no idea was so would be such a train wreck through my personal life and a 90 degree angle learning curve, this incredibly painful series of of lessons in how to grow and run a business. And it wasn't really until about year six that I actually felt qualified to do what I was doing, which was running this business. So I understand that you took time off from your work as a freelance book editor in 2002, so 11 years ago, intending to write an illustrated memoir about high school. Um, And instead, you founded your gift and stationery products company, Knock Knock. um, And you did that with a $750,000 windfall from a Manhattan apartment sale. Just two blocks away from here, as a matter of fact. So big, big question here. Uh Uh-huh. Why on earth did you sell your apartment? <laughs> you know, I, I actually got a nice little window of uh, the real estate market. So I feel very pleased at my little piece of the bubble. And granted, it would be worth more now. But, you know, of course, there are carrying costs for such a thing. And I had decided I was going to stay in Los Angeles and uh, didn't really enjoy being a landlord when I'd sell up my apartment and knew that it was a really good time to sell. So that's what I did. And I was in a, an under-budget rental, uh, under market rental that I really loved and had this money that I thought, well, will I buy another house? What am I going to do? And as I realized Knock Knock was what I wanted to do, I thought, you know, why not put it into this? What a great investment to, to start a business with this money and how lucky I am to have it. 
Were you ever worried that you might lose the investment? I wasn't, oddly enough. Um, because it came to me rather easily, I think I was less scared of losing it. So what happened in your years in high school that you thought would make a compelling memoir? Well, I um, I grew up in Berkeley, California, which was an interesting place to grow up. And so there were um, about 3,200 students, big high school in the middle of, of downtown Berkeley. You know, no fence around the high school. We went off campus whenever we wanted to. We all smoked. <laughs> um, and, you know, we grew up pretty fast there, and but had a real sense of, of kindred sensibility around, you know, arts and culture and politics. And it wasn't until I went to college, I went to the University of Michigan, that I realized it was actually a pretty unique way to grow up. And uh, also my mother uh, was diagnosed with terminal cancer when I was a sophomore in high school. And so my family changed very abruptly. So it was really uh, juggling uh, the school part of things, the social part of things, my boyfriend and my family life against the backdrop of uh, what was culturally a very interesting place. And uh, Berkeley High had these phenomenal yearbooks that are like 300 pages, 9 by 12, and they're incredibly irreverent. One of the um, you know best-looking, most popular kind of things was Most Stoned Without Drugs. Um, <laughs> and I think there was also Very Most Berkeley. Stoned With Drugs. Exactly. <laughs> um, and the idea of, of taking these pictures in which teenagers are shown at their sort of happiest and proudest moments when in reality there you know, so many of us were were pretty miserable on the inside, and, and essentially annotating those pictures felt very compelling to me. I would look at these pictures, you know, these senior formals, and know what had been going through that person's mind around that time, and it was such a disconnect between the picture and the actual story of somebody, say, who was at the time being molested by her father or... Um, so a lot of subtext. A lot of sub... It was all about subtext. Uh, as a book editor during my 20s here in New York, uh, working on coffee table books just as desktop publishing was coming into into use, that, um, first of all, I didn't realize there was a thing called graphic design, and secondly, that it could be done now on the computer with this odd little program called Quark. And um, <laughs> uh, I, discovered, <laughs> uh, Quark. Um, I discovered that I really loved to write and design at the same time, and that really afforded um, a kind of creative freedom that I hadn't yet had. Um, and even though I loved book editing, that was ushering somebody else's project to life. And uh, so it was a matter of sort of fishing for how am I going to uh, take these two sides of my brain and bring them together into something that will be uh, both a meaningful self-expression as well as a career. And my goal really was to bring um, with this memoir called Class of 87 um, and then later with Knock Knock was to bring the verbal and the visual under one umbrella. Well, in thinking about the origins of Knock Knock, um, I know you studied English literature and film studies at the University of Michigan mm -hmm. and that it was really back then that you came up with what would become your first product after going through your own very bad breakup. Can you describe what actually, you did that at the was time? A, that was a lot later, actually. Um, the first product that would become a knock-knock product I did while I was still living in New York, and it was um, a holiday card for myself, and it was oh, called the January, the January card. card. Okay. And that later became our best-selling holiday card of all time. And it, it introduced one of the major themes of knock-knock, which is justifying my own inadequacies. Yes, I want to talk about that. It turns out that <laughs> apparently other people have a sense of inadequacy. And um, one of the very 
satisfying things about Knock Knock All the Way Through has been uh, seeing how much my inadequacies resonate with other people and that they have the same inadequacies. So the January card, uh, you know, it starts off in, in, in its justified text that, you know, the first line is, I don't know, 72 point and the last line is eight point size type. And it starts off, you know, this is a January card for, it must have been 1997. Um, January cards, and it explains what they do and how much better they are than regular holiday cards. And the very last line is, and tastefully camouflaged hardiness. Because I always wondered, who are these people who managed to get their holiday cards out in November and December? You know, what is wrong with them? Yeah, I've given up. Exactly. So this was this was um, my way of sort of tweaking the fact that I just don't have it together like apparently others do. And uh, I got a lot of, you know, you should sell that. Um, you know, the other people would really like to have this card. And my thought at the time was that would be starting a widget company. I had just one product. Why would I want to, you know, do what I thought it would take to actually get it into the marketplace? I, turns out I had a very small idea of what it would take. And then... And a couple of years later, I actually missed November, December, and January, and I had just gone through a breakup, and I created a poster. Right, and that, that is was the... How to Find True Love, <laughs> a spaghetti-tangled mess of arrows. So can you describe that for our listeners? Without seeing it, it's really hard to be able to <laughs> sort of conjure what the idea of this is, but if you yes. can describe it a little bit. So it's a nice big poster, and um, basically uh, it starts with two paths, the very self-evolved person who knows that she may not be the right person for everybody, but you know, like ice cream, she's her own special flavor. <laughs> and the person who um, you know feels like they're never going to find anybody, um, but you know, I might as well try. And you know, nobody's going to like me, and I'm obsessive, and and all these you know freight train thoughts are going through my head. And then um, you know, it starts going to different kinds of first dates, and it just goes through every stage of a relationship. uh, And the options include things that will take you to the next level, as well as things that catapult you right back to the beginning. And so at the end is, you know, oh, um, this one wasn't right, but, you know, I'm just going to go to my Pilates class and then I'm going to get right back out there. And then it's, you know, I'm going to eat a whole chocolate cake and, you know, (laughs) question whether my therapist is actually doing anything for me and stay home for the next two years. And then in between (laughs) the start and the end is a big black circle that is is unspecified personal growth and everything then flows through there so i was i was feeling very mystified and i knew i had a best self and i knew i had a worse self and they were both represented there and the brass ring was of course a marriage or similar commitment at the end and the sequel was going to be um uh, something about divorce <laughs> it seems that a lot of the products and work that you create at knock knock it honors both the best self and the worst self. You know, that's that's really insightful. I hadn't ever really thought of it like that. And I think actually, I think that's that's really true. And I think that the best self is the self-awareness. It's the observational humor. And it's the, it's the wit and intelligence. I know that one of the things that I hear about um, people's reactions to knock-knock products is that we say things that they were thinking that they didn't know they were thinking. And so I think they have a sense of validation that, that somebody put their finger on something they were thinking and feeling. So I think that's the best self, you know, the acknowledgement of 
how bumbling we all feel that we are. One of the odd um, little quirks of Knock Knock is that uh, our stuff is funny, and then some of it is very sort of obsessive compulsively organizational. (laughs) Yes, I want to talk about that as well. An odd dual prong that is so me. You know, I wrote an entire book in Excel, I will say, (laughs) once. So the obsessive compulsive organizational stuff that acknowledges that it is really compulsive um, is, is in some way aspirational organization in that it acknowledges that, you know, you go to the container store, rather than clean your apartment, rather than go through your winter clothes, you go to the container store and you buy some great boxes. You don't do it after you've organized. You do it because it actually makes you feel like you're doing something something and you've done the work when, of course, all you've done is spend money. (laughs) So today you're a $10 million company. That $750,000 investment certainly has paid off. Um, You create nearly 100 products annually, as well as over 200 custom products for retailers like Urban Outfitters and Target. And some of your best sellers, I want to read off some of the names of your best sellers. They include the WTF stamp, as I mentioned in the introduction, the all-out-of-grocery checklist pads, and slang flashcards. Mm -hmm. You have sticky notes saying things like useless info and when pigs fly, list pads titled all out of and things you must do to make me happy, (laughs) flashcards for parenting, uh, sex, uh, kits to aid in decision-making, dating, and even decision-making during dating. Um, And you've also written the complete manual of things that might kill you and designed a series of guidance journals with names like I Can't Sleep and My Dysfunctions. Where did these ideas come from? First of all, I feel like I want to have you do a reading of all of our product titles. That was <laughs> that was just a joy to hear. Um, they come from not being able to sleep <laughs> and really just the issues that I stumble over and that now the team stumbles over because they did in the beginning all really come from me. And over time, you know, we've just been able to grow this incredible team that understands the knock-knock sensibility and goes with their grain. So it's it's their sensibility as well. But I find it comes from both things that I'm really struggling with in my own life, as well as hypocrisies that I see in the outside world. I am a little gadfly when it comes to hypocrisies. So, In what way? Um, Tell me how. Well, for example, the complete manual of things that might kill you. Um, you know, hypochond- hypochondria, I, I have really not very much patience for. And, and I feel like people are afraid of the wrong things. You know, so they're using all of this, you know, the hand sanitizer that, you know, for the most part, you know, doesn't often doesn't work at all. And they're worried about toilet seats when really the overuse of antibiotics is what's going to get us all in the end. So I think it's um, wanting to puncture sacred cows. There's something about people holding sacred uh, things that both are not terribly important and that also are not based in fact, and then very earnestly holding forth and uh, trying to sort of wield their opinions on you that just really makes me want to Uh, mock them. (laughs) 
<laughs> so how does that fit in with your own inadequacies? In general, we try more to poke fun at ourselves and to poke fun at others. One of the things that I've been proud of with Knock Knock over the years um, is people don't find our humor to be mean. And it's hard for humor not to be mean because humor almost always has an object. When you can for the most part, make the object of the humor yourself. Uh, It's much more palatable and people are able to recognize themselves in the humor. And then with something like the complete manual of things that might kill you, yes, perhaps we're mocking hypochondriacs, um, but it's in a very sly, seductive way and it's not identifying any one person. So I think people can feel as if they're making fun of themselves by reading it rather than us making fun of them. So I I recently read a marvelous article about you in the Wall Street Journal, and it describes your products as tapping into a growing national obsession with preparing to get things done. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So that's the aspirational organization. (laughs) Well, this gets back to the whole procrastination notion. Mm -hmm. And so why do you find – what is it about our culture now that is creating this national obsession? I think we have – so much going on. We have so much information flying at us. We've professionalized every area of our lives. You know, it's it's the Martha Stewart at home. It's the, you know, Harvard Business Review at the office. It's the Dr. Ruth in the bedroom. You know, um, we now that there are these very ambitious goals for every part of our life, if you can buy something that makes you feel as if you've taken a step, even if you have. And I think a lot of self-help books are like that. You know, I mean, I can't tell you how many self-help books that I've purchased but never read or nonfiction books that I've purchased but but never read. You know, the whole joke about, you know, buying a book is, you know, nine tenths toward having read it. And I read the review and I read the the, the jacket flap copy. Um, so well, I, isn't I, uh-huh. there a book out now about how to pretend that you've read a book? <laughs> uh, if there is, I'm going to have to buy it and not read it. <laughs> because I think I could probably characterize it pretty well just from the title. <laughs> now, you also um, use a term that I loved called procrastination crack. Mm. So can you describe what that is? I have not done crack. I'm I'm ashamed to say I shouldn't be able to talk about procrastination crack without actually having tried it. But what I imagine crack to be satisfying as is that immediate hit of something that makes you feel so good about, about what you're doing. And procrastination in general doesn't make us feel so good about what we're doing. And if you can um, convince yourself, I call it the bait and switch school of procrastination. You're supposed to be doing one thing productive, but instead you do another thing productive. So you're not sitting on the couch and eating bonbons um, or watching TV or twiddling your thumbs. But instead of, you know, writing the paper that you're supposed to write, you're instead cleaning the house. So I feel like uh, a lot of our products um, allow you to feel like you're doing something useful, but it's not the useful thing that you're supposed to be doing. Well, there are a lot of real uses for almost all of your products. Yes, indeed. Which is is sort Mm -hmm. of nice because it's entertainment, but it is also useful. Well, you know, Debbie, we do put the fun and functional. Yes, you do. We'll talk about your um, website and your philosophy in, in, in a few moments. Um, now, what what has been your most successful product to date? Uh, the All Out of Pad, which is the miracle of checking off depleted items as you go. <laughs> I kind of love that. <laughs> what, what about the most unsuccessful? 
We had this product called Deep Boxes that I loved. They were these little boxes that they were inspired by Yoko Ono's Smile Box, which she did with Fluxus. And it's this little plastic box that says smile in gold uh, type on the front. And then you open it up, there's just a mirror inside it. So um, we did four. We had um, adages like see the forest for the trees or think outside the box or whatever. And they were wrapped in paper, in printed paper that had a trompe brain or trompe forest and you would open it up and there would be a mirror inside it and it would complete the adage and it was my idea was that they would sort of fit a category that I think of as more than a card less than a gift and they had a little inscription space on the bottom and they were beautiful little morsels but they were just way too high minded and nobody knew what to do with them and we made yeah. thousands of them and I still they're still one of my favorite products that we've done and that was you know in the early days my, my goal was was really to sort of see how I could merge art and commerce in a way and make things that one of my goals was to have no clients um, so that the the our creations would be taken to the level that we felt they were ready to be in the world. And then the marketplace would decide, you know, whether or not um, it was something that people wanted versus, you know, sort of creating it with dribs and drabs here and there and feeling like we had made compromises along the way. And some of the early products were definitely more conceptual, definitely more in the art direction. And unfortunately, they just don't resonate with people in the numbers that you need to mass produce. So that's certainly been a yeah, learning curve. As soon as you said fluxus, I was like, oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, those, I get that those one. Those were big sellers. <laughs> um, and, uh, but, but one of the battles that we fight every day is how do we keep that sense of intelligence, some of the conceptualism, um, how do we elevate um, the, I mean, of course, the WTF stamp, like we have certain things that are just moneymakers. And it turns out that like any Anything we put WTF on sells, but you need those things and they're really easy and you don't have to think about them very much. So do you ever do any market research or is it all based on what you and your team believe will be we satisfying to the market? We have done almost no market research, but we want to start. 94% of our sales are wholesale. So our primary customers are uh, retailers and buyers. And sometimes in terms of understanding um, who our customer is, it feels a little bit like we're typing with mittens. Like we just we just can't touch the end consumer. Um, but with our website, we do have, and with our social media, we have direct contact. And so we have been wanting for a long time to put together, you know, groups of, of you know, knock-knock loyalists. It'd probably be good to put some non-knock-knock loyalists in there too, but, um, you know, we don't have their email addresses. Now, for such a savvy businesswoman, I know that you've you've said many times that you never planned to go into business. Um, and you describe yourself as an artist who looks at the guys in the airport buying the book Who Moved My Cheese as chumps. Yeah. So, I mean, kind of aren't so they? What che- well, who, who wants to fly in a suit? Well, I, I read I the mean, book and I, I probably read it in, in an air- <laughs> from an airport book, you know, bookstore. But, and I but was you, probably weren't wearing wearing a suit. A, you were wearing a suit. Oh, <laughs> Sorry, Jen. I fly in stretch pants and running shoes. <laughs> Although I did once fly in pajamas, um, but that was during a red eye. In any case, what changed? <laughs> what changed? Well, by necessity, I had to learn the business. And one of my life MOs is to get myself in trouble so that I can get myself out of trouble because I'm not very good at making myself do things without real world deadlines or pressures. So if I can get myself stuck in a tree, 
then I have no choice but to figure out a way to get myself down from the tree. But um, with Knock Knock, if I took in orders, that meant that I had to fulfill them, right? If I do that, then there's no going back. I'm, I'm big on the like, do something so there's no going back so I can't change my mind. I say I would say would be more the way to describe it. And we were really fortunate because our products were successful in the marketplace immediately. Our problems have never been about um, the popularity of the products um, and, and, you know, success in the marketplace. I mean, obviously, we have some we have duds, but we always we had sales reps immediately banging down our doors. We had great acceptance from from chains. Um, So our problems were all growing pains Um, and success can be in some ways as challenging as failure. And, you know, during those years, I felt like I had acid running through my veins because, you know, I was simultaneously learning how to manage people, which I am not naturally disposed to do because it requires diplomacy and and non-eye rolling, um, which I almost feel like I wish I had a brace for my eyes to keep them from rolling. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so learning learning management as distinct from leadership, I'm a much better leader than I am a manager. Um, but learning management, um, learning the supply chain stuff, learning how to vet different vendors. Um, so it's so much that's going on at the same time for the first five years. I wrote every word that came out of Knock Knock and was the main person behind all the concepting as well. So it was really like starting two businesses at once in a way. And um, um, those years are a bit of a blur. I've lately been meeting people that I met in those years. People like, oh, we've met before. And, and I say, oh, oh, when was that? And they'll name something and the, a fuzzy memory will start to form. But it was really incredibly overwhelming. And so I had to learn the business. I mean, there was really no choice. And then what surprised me is that I loved it. That was a huge surprise and that there was as much creativity as there is in it and that it actually really – you know, I think that I'm – far from the best designer there will ever be. I'm not the best writer that will ever be, and I'm not the best business person. But I think one of the things that is special about me is my ability to combine them. And I've always had a really strong math and numbers and logic side to me, as well as the creative expressive side. So my ability to do both is visible both in the products as well as in my ability to run the business. And I would say the other major strength is is self-awareness, knowing what I am good at and knowing what I'm not good at, um, which is not as admirable as it would seem because I'm constantly getting feedback, you know, from people that, you know, you suck as a manager. <laughs> and, you know, it might be good if you hired somebody to do that for you. And so I've been able to assemble a team around me, you know, that complement me where they have strengths uh, in my weak areas. And I think the hardest thing about being an entrepreneur in the early days is you have to do the things that you're weak at because you're not at a point yet where you can have the help from other people in doing them. Yeah, that takes money. Yeah. And I, I read that you said that there are all these entrepreneurs out there who say running a company is so great. Go for it. And you've said don't do it unless you absolutely have to because it's really hard. Yep. Um, what keeps you doing it? 
Well, I mean, I'm at a really great point right now. Um, you know, the the comparison uh, between entrepreneurship and parenting is is perhaps overused, but that's because it's so apt in a lot of ways. I mean, most of my friends, you know, their ki- when their kids are between zero and five, they have this glassy eyed look on their faces that comes from lack of sleep and, you know, a lot of wiping. You know, far too much wiping. And um, and then, you know, they have this sense of lightness to them, you know, in year six, seven, eight, you know, when their youngest kid is over five and they start going out again and they start seeming like themselves again. And so I feel um, in the first it was more like six years for me, I was in fire drill mode all the time and I kept writing checks. What is it? Your mouth writes checks that your ass can't cash or something like that. (laughs) Um, I kept doing that over and over and over again, but trying to get my ass to cash them. And we mostly did cash them or, you know, when we couldn't, it wasn't so bad that we wouldn't get another chance and do it. And, um, I was the only one who couldn't quit, and that was a hard realization. There was one point where one of one of the key people who actually is still with us uh, resigned because she and her husband and son wanted to move back to the Bay Area. And my first thought was not, oh, no, I'm going to lose Trish. It was, I want to quit my job and move back to the Bay Area. So, you know, being the only person who can't quit is was a hard thing for a while. And now... Um, I feel like I have so much more choice and freedom because I have such a great management team and the company, to some sense, uh, can run without me. I mean, I'm still necessary for new initiatives and strategy and putting the fairy dust on things and helping, you know, to communicate the voice and the sensibility. But I have reached what people hope to reach when they become entrepreneurs, um, which is a good deal more freedom and a good deal more control. I uh, speak at a lot of um, entrepreneur conferences, and I find that especially the ones that are specifically about women entrepreneurs, stress, control, and freedom in being an entrepreneur as reasons to become an entrepreneur. And my feeling is that, I mean, would anybody ever say they wanted to have a child to have freedom and control? Like, it's really the opposite. You know, being responsible to people is far more onerous than, say, you know, being responsible for reporting to a boss. But if you can get through it and if you can get to the other side and if you can be profitable, um, there is, you know, a, a pot of gold that that is about, you know, owning what you do, um, having some sense of control and satisfaction and freedom from it. But it takes a while to get there. You've described yourself as more of a creative monarch than a democratic team leader. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what does that mean? Um, so I would always have great ideas that I'd be like, okay, guys, let's execute on this, you know. And I remember when I learned the term wrist, meaning uh, designers who are told exactly what to design, they say, oh, I'm just a wrist, meaning on the mouse. And I thought, oh, no, I'm turning the designers into wrists. No wonder they're so they're so dissatisfied. <laughs> but my creative impulses are, are so strong that it's hard for me to cultivate the creative impulses in others. I just get, it's more that I get so excited and caught up in my own ideas. I mean, it's less dastardly than I think sometimes it seemed to my employees. But I 
You know, about five years ago, we realized if we wanted the company to have value, meaning if we wanted to be able to sell the company at some point and reap those rewards, that the company had to be able to run without me. That if there was single point failure and I was the only sort of creative juice behind the company, there was only so much you could go for. And of course, if I got hit by a bus, the company would be worth very little. So it was going to be key to cultivate a creative team that could operate independently of me, that had enough of the knock-knock DNA, that it was not uh, – our our great product releases were not dependent on any one, two, or three people. And instrumental to achieving that was hiring Craig, who's our publisher. And he had been at Chronicle Books for 17 years, I think, and he was one of the founders of their gift division. And he's just an amazing person. And his his talent – I mean, as many talents, and he's incredibly creative himself as well. But um, he comes more from the perspective of taking joy in cultivating the creativity and the ownership of others, whereas I think I get a little bit too caught up in my own ideas. I want to do it myself. Um, I, it's not so much that I have ego about my ideas, but more that like I just have a vision for them. And, and unless somebody else comes in with a, like a really good idea in that moment, like my vision barrels through. So his his joining the team and really taking control of the creative teams and growing the creative teams has resulted not only in a much more broad-based company with um, a really strong sense of DNA, but also much, much happier creative employees. <laughs> Let's talk about that DNA for a minute. Mm-hmm. I was really intrigued by your manifesto on the Knock Knock website, and I'm going to read you a little bit of it. Uh, You say, we believe in the golden rule, friendly customer service, and shipping quality merchandise on time, though occasionally we are grumpy and circumstances beyond our control result in tardiness. We suffer fools not gladly, but for the most part, we actually like the other human beings. Our customers comprise the impish, the dapper, the droll, the young at heart, those who prefer the humor of the truth to false, feel-good affirmations." Did you write that? I did write that. And I just have to say once again, I think we need to go on tour with your (laughs) reading um, various knock-knock product names. You know, probably you could read our FAQs. We could do knock-knock Everybody would be entertained. Uh, No, actually, I, you know, when I decided on the name knock-knock, I thought, well, there must be good knock-knock jokes, even though though I've never heard of one. (laughs) And I got a bunch of knock-knock joke books, and I was actually kind of dismayed because I was going to do all this stuff with knock-knock jokes. And um, none of them are good. None of them are good. They're all dumb. But yes, I did write that. Uh, it's We've had to alter it a little bit over the years. How come? Well, when I first wrote it, I, I had the hubris to think that when people shipped defective product late, that it was because they were careless individuals who did not have the commitment to, um, you know, ethics and quality that we did. And then I soon learned that actually um, it's very difficult difficult to do. And sometimes it really gets away from you. You also write that even though it's possible to use fewer words than more, why? <laughs> yes. That, you know, I feel like people are either either underwrite or overwrite. And I overwrite. I've always overwritten. I've always babbled. And 
I have come to the conclusion that that is my lot in life. And part of this expression of our own inadequacies is this kind of babbling where we have little digressions and and side stories that come up. And then, you know, it all comes around to a little punchy conclusion. And I wanted to uh, express that we were in support of saying a little too much. We were in support of TMI. We were in support of using the loftier word uh, in place of the simpler word because we just like that word and it's underused. (laughs) Speaking of underused, you're writing for Huffington Post, I see, and you just wrote a piece about how you are now talking on the telephone again. Can you believe it? After years and years of avoiding the telephone. Mm -hmm. I loathe the telephone. As much as I like to talk Mm -hmm. and ask questions, I have this issue with I don't know, maybe not being able to see the person or be in the same room with them. But now you're you're making a conscious effort to actually talk on the telephone again. I am. Why? Why is that? I realize that I actually enjoy it sometimes and that these relationships – I mean, I have such close friends who don't live in the same city where I do. It's, you know, such a, a phenomenon of how much we move around and, you know, how career-focused we can be. And I was – for so long, really intimidated by the idea that because we hadn't talked in a while, it would be this endless, what I called newsletter conversation where we'd have to catch up. And what actually sort of turned my way of thinking was my godmother said, you know, I, I really miss being a part of your daily life. Could we just, you know, talk on the phone every few days for five minutes? It doesn't have to be a big conversation. If you have to go, you have to go. And I realized that I really enjoyed that continuity, um, that I really enjoyed having that sense of a an unbroken story with one another. And I realized that I, I would, the phone would ring at a time when I was in the car. I was sitting on the couch watching TV, and it would be one of the people I most love in the world on the caller ID. And my first thought was, what are they doing bothering me right now? And it, so taking another beat um, and thinking, how nice would it be to talk to Amy right now and actually answering? And and my friends are still really surprised when I answer them. Oh, 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 you're there. <laughs> so, Jen, my last question is about this particular phenomena. Do you have a product that gives people rules for talking on the telephone? You know, that's a great idea, Debbie. I think that's going to be the first product I develop uh, after this interview. (laughs) Jen, thank you so much for being on Design Matters. Thank you. This is such a pleasure. To learn more about Jen Billick or to browse gifts specifically designed for annoying people, visit knockknockstuff.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.